I'm Joy Manning, and this is Eat, Drink, Think, a podcast brought to you by Edible Communities, the James Beard award-winning network of magazines published across the U.S. and Canada. Together, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. Today, we're digging into the topic of sustainable meat. Recently, the National Audubon Society partnered with Panorama Organic to certify every ranch in Panorama's network, 1 million acres, as bird-friendly. You can read all about it in the summer issue of Edible Communities magazines or online at ediblecommunities.com. Today, I'm talking with Kay Cornelius, a fourth-generation rancher and the new general manager at Panorama Organic, as well as Marshall Johnson, vice president of Audubon's Conservation Ranching Initiative. And before you go shopping for your sustainable grass-fed beef, you'll definitely want to hear my conversation with Marilyn Noble, a food writer and recipe developer with special expertise in cooking grass-fed beef. But first, Kay's here to talk birds, beef, and what it's like to be a woman in the male-dominated business of meat. Hi, Kay. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Well, as we mentioned, ranching is your family business. You're a fourth-generation rancher. And I'm wondering, did you ever consider a totally different career outside of the world of ranching and meat? I wanted to be a veterinarian from the earliest of ages. I was a horse girl. I loved horses. I could, you know, be with my father and my family out working cows on a horse. It was a place that I found freedom and I loved taking care of horses. So I went to college to be a veterinarian. And along the way, something that that I think really shaped me was besides loving to be with my dad, my mom was this super cool person who was a foodie before there was such a thing as a foodie. And we lived in South Dakota. I always like to say a gas tank away from the closest town with a big grocery store. But my mother, being who she was, she she got Gourmet Magazine and Bon Appetit before it was cool. And she would take me on trips to Minneapolis and you know, it was trips to do things to run errands for the farm. But along the way, we always stopped at the Byerly's grocery store, the one with the big chandeliers. And we would buy things that that we'd never seen before on a farm in South Dakota. And we'd take those home, things like garlic. That was pretty exotic <laughs> for us. <laughs> That's funny. And, you know, carrots of different colors and cheeses that, you know, we all we'd ever seen in a grocery store where I grew up was the orange kind, right? <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and we brought home all these cheeses and, and my mother would cook from these recipes. And so the love of animals from my father and farming and being with the season from my father and the love of cooking with my mother was probably a pretty intoxicating combination. So it's in your blood. It was in my blood. And I will never forget as a child we butchered a steer every year. And that steer was done at a local butcher shop because every little town had a local butcher shop. We would walk in. I love the smell of a meat shop, a butcher shop. I love the smell and I, the, the, just the, 
butcher wrap paper meat was was something of wonder to me. I hadn't ever really seen anything that came in a cellophane wrap with a styrofoam back until I was much older. And so my mother being the cook that she was and buying buying ingredients or growing them, we had huge gardens. And my father always being outside working on the ranch and farming. I just, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I got to college and I didn't get into vet school on my first try. Not unusual for that period of, 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 of time. I met a professor of meat science who, who just took me under his wing and said, you don't need to go to vet school. Come, come, come do research with me on, on the science of meat. And I, and I loved that. I, I truly did. I, I got to see some of the world through my travels as a grad student. I got a, I, I was a full ride scholarship with a graduate stipend. I mean, it was like a pot of gold. That's how I, I got to be, you know, kind of the background of why I, I love ranching. And then, and then along the way, I married a rancher. There was no plans for that. And I married a rancher, uh, newly married. We went back to the ranch, which in the early 90s, jobs were a little hard to find. And I was pretty far from a big city, but I was very close to a meatpacking plant. So at 23, I took a job in the meatpacking plant because there was nothing else. That was another epiphany for me. But yeah, that's how I kind of got my start. And I just love the smell of cows. I love the smell of, of, of their hair and the hay. I, I, I just find it to be comforting and there's something about it. I, I can't say the same for pigs, but I love <laughs> the smell of cows. It's great to be doing what you love. Yeah, yeah. So you have this background in meat. You are a rancher. You're uh, ranching to this day. But you also have this very impressive business background. Today, you are the general manager for Panorama Organic Meats. You came to Panorama from the a very big name in the meat world, Nyman Ranch. Yeah. So where did you get this business background? So the, the, the one thing I can tell you from going to college and I if I was to, to give any advice to ag students, agricultural students, animal science students, is I did not have to take a business class. And that was a major mistake. I've had to learn the financial side of it the hard way through, through, through hard knocks. However, I have a mother-in-law at, who runs our ranch who is a CPA I, and she's as tough as nails. And so she has helped me build the business case for why we ranch and, and, and help me from that standpoint. And then I have to say that I'm surrounded by great team members who, you know, I, I will self-admit the things I'm weak on. And gosh, Jeff Trippishan, who I've worked for now for 12 years, he sent me to Vanderbilt's business school, the executive series, so that I could learn to read a balance sheet and learn some of the business MBA type stuff, type materials, so that so that I could walk the walk and talk the talk when it came to running a business. It's been, I, I, I just have had a lot of people help me along the way on the business side that cared enough to to spend the time and 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 really help me with that. Nyman Ranch is a big company, Panorama Organic. Also, you know, these are companies where you have to balance your profit goals with your values as a company, um, and it yeah. seems like that could be a little tricky. How, how do you, how do you 
think about that? How does that play out in your work life? I believe that the model, the business model that was built at Nyman Ranch, and, and, and I'm carrying this forth into Panorama, is one that is totally different than anything else I've seen in the, in the meat business. You know, I worked, I worked for Nyman and I, I also worked for, um, you know, a large, large meat company for 10 years. And every... Do you mean a large meat company that doesn't have sustainable values as central to its mission like Nyman and Panorama? I, yes, I worked. Okay. I, I worked for for that packing plant that I went to work for. I have, I eventually moved up into the into the office, so to speak. Mm-hmm. There is a difference between raising beef and being a meat company, or raise you know raising the the product and being a meat company. And what Nyman and, and along that way, in the traditional commodity sense, someone along the value chain always loses. Buy low, sell high. It you know it's what's the commodity market? You're always trying to buy below the commodity market and sell above above the the carcass you know USDA posted carcass price. Someone along that chain is always the loser, whether it be the producer or the whether it be the cow calf producer or the 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 finish the one that finishes them and gets them to market weight or the packing plant or the retailer. Someone along that chain is, is, is losing. What I loved about Nyman Ranch is no one lost along the value chain. And the way that the business model was, was, was successful was the farmer came first. We, everything we do at Panorama, everything we did, we continue to do at, our, at Nyman Ranch where I came from, the farmer comes first. We pay, we pay the farmer a fair wage for the product, and then we tell the farmer's story. It is so powerful. And when you look them in the eye, like I did last week, and you see three generations, you, you want them to win. And if you have a business model that puts them first, and, and we tell the story, that's, that's when the meat company can be financially viable. And I mean, we all need them to win. Coming off of a conversation with Marshall, we, we need regenerative agriculture on the grasslands to preserve the ecosystem there. It's what I've learned from you all. I will tell you that I grew up in rural South Dakota. I had 27 kids in my high school class. We were all farm kids. And none of us returned to the ranch because someone lost and the community became deserted. The school is now closed. The town of 350 is now something less than that. And that's not okay. Families that don't own the land is not okay. My mission, because it's personal for me, is to make sure that anyone at Panorama that is raising cattle for Panorama has a source of income that gives hope for that next generation. That's what drives me in everything I do. Is it fair to say there aren't a lot of women in executive leadership positions in the meat in the meat business? Not where I've worked at Nyman and and at Panorama. Panorama has eleven people on staff. Five of them are women. At Nyman, we have always been heavy on women from executives on down. It is it is split very evenly. It's 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 a culture that that is inclusive of of women and 
people of diverse backgrounds. I think that's what makes us really great. We have a, a diversity of opinions within the company and, and the culture allows us to have those diversity of opinions that come from men, women, different ages, different backgrounds, and it informs all of us on how to do business best. Other than the advice you already shared about um, taking business courses when you're um, in school, do you have any other advice for younger women or earlier career women who may be interested in leadership roles in either the meat business or agriculture more generally or even the food world at large? Well, I think, I think the good news is that the tide is turning. We are, we are lucky to live in this time where women in leadership or on a path to leadership are mentored. I, I, have, I myself have been very lucky to have had, I, I've always worked for men. That's, that, is, that is a true statement, but I've always been surrounded by women as well as men, but, but women in particular that, that had that goal of advancing. And I, I would say that find your mentor. Find that person that will take you, whether it's a man or a woman, find that person that will that will say, I will give you a hand up. Much like much like uh, Jeff did for me when it came to knowing that I needed to take some business classes. We make it a priority here at, at Panorama and particularly at Nyman, where if you wanted to take a class, go ahead and do it. And and you know, we would celebrate advancement, whether it be colleges, business classes learning a new skill, um, whatever it is to, to make you an all-around person. And the other thing that I tell people, whether they're men or women, two things when they're first starting out from college, try to stick it out at least one year at your first job. Be patient. I see a lot of impatience. People that have been in a job three months decide that they don't, don't like it. They're not advancing fast enough. Well, who can advance in three year, in three months? And so be patient and learn not just what to do, but maybe take the tips of what not to do so that when you're ready for your next job, you, you have that opportunity. But most certainly here, this culture with, with Nyman and Panorama, women have been treated as equals and I've been lucky. I, I just have had incredible mentors along the way. Well, that's great to hear. And I think that's great advice for um, really any person who's trying to make way in their career. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Okay. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Joy. And our Panorama ranchers, thank you as well for telling our story. Well, I thank them. That was Kay Cornelius, General Manager of Panorama Organic Meats. Marshall Johnson is the vice president of the Conservation Ranching Initiative at the National Audubon Society, and he believes regular people have more power than we think to help protect the environment through our purchasing decisions. To that end, Audubon has created the Grazed on Bird-Friendly Land Seal to help eco-conscious shoppers make decisions about what beef to buy. Welcome to the podcast, Marshall. Thanks for having me, Joy. So how did you get into preserving grasslands and the birds that live there? Why is this so important to you? What drew you to the topic? Well, it's certainly, you know, if I could go back and talk to five-year-old me, it's certainly not what would have been 
on my what are you going to do when you grow up list. Um, but I grew up in Dallas, Texas and California, uh, Los Angeles, California, and we spent a lot of time on the roads in between Dallas and Los Angeles. And I just always remembered never feeling comfortable in cities and always feeling at home out on the prairies of West Texas and New Mexico and in Arizona and that whole landscape. And not something that, you know, a black kid in the inner city thinks about would be a career one day, but uh, studying business at the University of Minnesota and one day kind of um, in a roundabout way, I, I, I was drug into joining a prairie chicken viewing blind and all of that nostalgia, all of those feelings, those sounds from my time uh, growing up, spending a lot of time in Texas came back to me and I decided this is what I want to do. I want to work in conservation somehow, some way uh, of grasslands. I'm sorry, you were drawn into a prairie chicken, what? Can you say more about that or explain it to other city slickers like me that might not know what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Prairie chickens and sage grouse, this suite of birds, uh, grouse species are just incredible birds. And during the springtime, they have a ritual that they do. And, and these booming grounds are mating grounds. These We call them leks. Uh, the males and females meet up and there are these incredible song and dances and uh, uh, mating displays that the males will will do in order to attract females that are standing by and, and watching this sort of odd behavior. And uh, if you sneak into pre-set up blinds, usually they are sort of trailers or some type of, of wooden enclosed area so the birds don't know you're there. If you sneak in right before sunrise, you're able to view all of this from 15, 20 feet away. And I was invited to come along one morning and it sort of changed my life, I guess you could say. That's incredible. How did you find your way from being a business school student who, you know, observed this thing that was moving to you and motivated you to want to preserve the the grasslands to get onto a, a pretty different career track than you might expect for a business school student? It's a great question. I decided to move to Fargo, North Dakota and to take a part-time role with the National Audubon Society. I thought that it would be a three-month, kind of six-month kind of fill this out and and think about what this feeling is that that I, I'm having and wanting to do conservation, having not really thought much about it uh, previous to that point. Uh, and that was a, uh, it was uh, supposed to be a three or six month detour and it was a 13 year career. And you're still there. I am. <laughs> So can you tell us in a nutshell why Audubon created this new grazed on bird friendly land seal? There's already a lot of labels sort of coming at you when you're at the grocery store. Yeah, absolutely. For Audubon, and I think generally I would I think it's it's something we should all accept, the production of food and energy is ruining our planet is and leads to planetary ruin, but it doesn't have to the production of food and energy can lead us down a road of planetary renewal. 
Um, and it's all about how we grow food, how we grow and, and produce energy. What we recognized was there were a lot of labels out there, but very few, if any, and actually none at the time, were really focused on a measured science-based approach to protecting and enhancing birds, ecology, and biodiversity. Uh, Organic alone doesn't do that. Um, regenerative is sort of a big umbrella, big term. We wanted to create, some, create something that really spoke specifically to birds because birds are such an incredible indicator of overall ecosystem health. And at the time that we started to think about this program, you know, we're in a period of 40 years where we've lost 3 billion birds and the overwhelming majority of those have been birds that nest in grasslands because we are degrading and losing North America's grasslands. We've lost more than 50% of uh, what was once uh, one of the most ubiquitous native ecosystems out there. And so we recognize that our conservation efforts tend to fall outside of the main drivers of land use at scale, and that there was potential for Audubon to take our very well-known brand, mobilize our 1.9 million members in the broader set of 48 million birders in this country, and put that energy behind a, product, a methodology or approach to food production that was regenerative and bird-friendly and measured. Uh, so we want to measure birds. We want to measure ecological outcomes. We want to measure soil carbon uh, and so overall soil health, but really focusing on all of those things for the benefit of biodiversity. That space was not occupied and there was growing, and I think there, there has been a growing interest amongst consumers and the general public for really uh, ways to eat and diets that tie back to ecosystem health. And that's really what encouraged us to move in this, this direction. As a result of talking to you and reporting this article that will be in um, the summer issues of Edible Magazines and at ediblecommunities.com, I came away with a much more nuanced understanding of how cows can impact the environment. Like a lot of people, I was thinking that just uh, beef was uniformly bad for the environment. And when we talked, you mentioned that there's all this buzz around plant-based meats right now, and that that doesn't tell the story, that it's not really, doesn't really live up to the hype of the, as a solution to our environmental problems. Can you, can you tell me what, in a nutshell, people are getting wrong about that? And what I, you know, it was what I was getting wrong as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, first I'd say, what are people getting right about that? And what I think people are getting right about it, and I'm encouraged by, people are being deliberate. People are being intentional about how their food and their lifestyle ties back to the environment we live in. And I give, you know, that's really encouraging. I think what we're getting wrong is one, thinking that there are these silver bullets they're, they're two complex uh, environmental questions. Um, and then a fixation on something. Let's say a fixation on production, 
has gotten us into sort of this mess that we're in environmentally as it relates to agriculture, you know, production at all costs. And now we're, we're kind of overproducing uh, certain foods and we're trying to find new ways to use the production of certain plants for energy and for other things. And um, it's kind of gotten us into a bit of a quagmire. The final thing that I think people get wrong is just the basic science of, of ecosystems and how they function, particularly grasslands. There's a saying, anyone can love the mountains, but it takes soul to love the prairie. And I think it sort of sums up this underappreciated, vital, and vast ecosystem that we have collectively walloped over the last 150 years. And I think that's what I think a lot of people get wrong, the notion that growing a commodity plant, you know, corn, beans, soybeans, et cetera, et cetera, is better than having a native ecosystem that is grazed by fill in the blank. And I say that for a reason, sort of fill in the blank. That ecosystem, our grassland ecosystem, evolved naturally with large ruminant herbivores on the landscape. 35 million elk, 60 million bison, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think what people get wrong is this notion that cattle are inherently bad for that ecosystem. That's not, that's not true. Uh, and that's not what various research has shown us. Left to their own devices, cows are not as symbiotic as bison and elk for native grasslands. But through management, deliberate rotational gra grazing, um, eliminating chem uh, certain chemicals and uh, uh, other practices out of the production, uh, cows can be can mimic that usefulness and that that function that that disturbance and that grazing uh, regime that these native and wild herbivores once provided. So it's really it's you've heard it probably uh, quite a bit, but it's not the cow, it's the how. And that's what our certification focuses on is how the cow is managed and, and produced. Uh, and we've seen some incredible data from you know, branches that have been enrolled three or four or five years now. We've seen on average an increase in bird abundance of 36%. That reaffirms sort of why we went down this road and why I would encourage folks to think twice about just a plant-based diet as a solution because the effects on native grasslands, again, our most ubiquitous native ecosystem in North America uh, could be quite devastating. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Marshall. It was really great to talk to you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That was Marshall Johnson, the vice president of the Conservation Ranching Initiative at the National Audubon Society. He gave a great TED Talk about how your shopping choices can impact the environment in a positive way. And we'll link to it in today's show notes at ediblecommunities.com. Marilyn Noble is a food writer who recently developed the recipes for grass-fed beef that appear in Panorama Perspective magazine. She's also the author of five Southwestern cookbooks and hundreds of articles on agriculture, food, and business.
Marilyn, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So grass-fed beef can be a little bit of a controversial topic among eaters. You know, we've talked on this podcast a lot about the environmental benefits, um, but some people have the impression that grass-fed beef just doesn't taste as good. So I was hoping you could share some positive things. You know, you've obviously cooked through a lot of grass-fed beef in that project. So like what positive things can you say about the way it tastes? Well, you know, to me, grass-fed tastes really big and beefy. You know, when you're used to eating grain-fed beef, especially, you know, commodity beef that you buy at the grocery store, it all tastes the same and it's kind of bland. But grass-fed beef reminds me of the meat we used to eat when I was a kid. You know, it it just has a very meaty, beefy flavor. And then the other part of that is terroir. If you're a wine drinker, you know about that. You know, the, the grapes from one vineyard create wines that taste totally different from the vineyard down the road. And the same thing is true of grass-fed beef. You know, the the taste of the meat, the flavor that comes through is actually the flavor of what the cows were eating. So, you know, if it's spring and there's a lot of fresh green grass, you might get a grassy note in the beef. If it's fall and they're eating forage, you might get more of a vegetal or, you know, alfalfa flavor to it. So you truly do get to eat, you know, everybody says you're eating what the animal ate. You're really tasting that. And to me, that's one of the beautiful things about grass fed. You know, it's never, never the same twice. It can, it can vary and it's delightful. It's a more complex flavor. Much more complex, yes. Now, I know that there's some challenges in cooking it, or I guess a better way to say it would be differences from grass-fed or from conventional beef. Can you talk a little bit about what those differences might be? Well, the big thing is that grass-fed beef is leaner than conventional beef. So it's very easy to cook the moisture out of it. And you don't want to do that because then you end up with something that's really dry and tough. And I think that's a lot of where grass-fed gets a bad rap. You know, it, if it's overcooked, it's it's not great. Um, so you have to really pay attention to what you're doing. You can't leave it on the heat too long. Like if you're cooking a steak, you really want to pay attention. Use a meat thermometer, even if you've never used one before, invest in one. Meat thermometer, so important. So important. So important. Because it can go from perfectly done to overdone in as little as a minute. So you just you just need to pay attention. And then, you know, use a lower temperature. Don't try to sear things. And sometimes with a, a conventional steak, you know, you throw it on the grill and you throw it on the hottest part of the coals and you cook it and it's great, but you don't want to do that with grass fed because you run the risk of overcooking. So pay attention and use a meat thermometer are the two big things. You know what I bet would be good? I mean, this isn't for everyone, but if you have one of those home immersion circulators, one of the, like a home right. sous vide setup where it holds a very specific temperature, then you can guarantee that you won't overcook it. Yeah. Sous vide is great for grass fed. Yeah. Have you done it? Do you have one? I don't have one, but I know other people who have. Right. And it's yeah. really, you know, if you set it to about 120, 125, 
then you're going to get a really beautiful rare piece of meat and then you can just sear it off and you're it's, good. It's mistake proof is one is, like, it is the thing that I like about it. It is. So flipping through the magazine, I noticed so many appealing recipes and, you know, we talked a little bit about people that have perhaps the wrong idea about grass fed beef or they think they don't like it. What recipes do you think they should start with if they, if they want to, you know, really discover how great it is? Do you have uh, any specific recommendations? Well, you know, the one I really love is for carne asada sandwiches. You know, carne asada is a typical meat dish throughout the Southwest and Northern Mexico. And it's, it's basically just grilled meat. So if you get a sirloin and you marinate it for a few hours in a, a mixture of olive oil, lime juice, chili powder, black pepper, and garlic, then it those spices accentuate the flavor of the meat. They don't overwhelm it, but they don't hide it either. So if you haven't liked the flavor of grass-fed in the past, you know that's a great way to start with a really good marinade. So the beautiful thing about the carne asada is that you, after you marinate the meat, then you throw it on the grill really quickly and you, you pile it on a ciabatta roll with some spread made of mayonnaise, a little hot sauce, a little lime juice, and then you grill some thick cut red onions, some red peppers, a poblano pepper, if you like, and you just pile that all on the sandwich. And it's so good. It's so tasty. The meat gets thin sliced across the grain. So it's just, it's a mess to eat, but it's so delicious. So it sounds perfect for summer. It is. It's great for summer. And that's one thing I would suggest, you know, if you, with this particular set of recipes, you know, if you're afraid of the flavor Um, that's one that will help you get past that. And then the other one, we have some great steak rubs. So if you want to try a grass-fed steak, but you're afraid of the flavor, put a rub on it. We have one here. uh, One of the the photographers said she could put this rub on her toast for breakfast. She liked it so (laughs) much. It's just, it's very simple. It's paprika, salt, cocoa powder, espresso powder, garlic powder, a little brown sugar and black pepper. And you mix that all up and you rub it a lot of it, put a lot of it on the steak. And it's so good when it comes off the grill because it chars a little bit. It's got that smoky kind of bitter flavor from the espresso and the cocoa powder, but it's got a hint of sweet from the sugar. It's just really good. Um, And then the other rub, the other rub too is also very good. It's also got espresso in it, but it's heavier on the chili. It's got smoked paprika and chipotle powder, and then some oregano and thyme, salt and pepper, garlic, you know, both of those are really good for, again, you know, bringing out the beefy flavor and complementing it with spice, but not overpowering it or hiding it. And I mean, maybe people are not so much like afraid of it or think they don't like it, but maybe it's just different and unfamiliar. And these types of bold flavors would help people, you know, make the transition, so to speak. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, the other thing too, I think is again, take care in cooking. Cause I've heard a lot of people say, Oh, grass fed, it's so tough, but it's not if it's cooked properly. So. Right. Right. Well, one thing grass fed 
beef is, especially organic, grass-fed, grass-finished beef, uh, is more expensive. There's no two ways about it. It costs more than conventional beef. Right. Um, do you have any advice, cooking advice, shopping advice for home cooks on a budget? Oh, sure. You know, first of all, don't make it the center of your plate. You know, nobody needs a big old rib steak that's hanging over the edges of the plate. I mean, it's fun to eat that way, but that's certainly not a budget conscious way to eat. So, you know, go for smaller portions, go for off cuts that that people don't think of too often, like flank steak or skirt steak or brisket. We have a couple of recipes for those cuts in the panorama perspective. And, you know, those are a good way to buy meat on a budget. You eat a smaller portion instead of making it the center of the meal. And then, you know, as Kay Cornelius, who's the GM of Panorama, likes to say, ground beef is the gateway. So ground beef is a way to, you know, cook. You're going to pay a couple bucks, maybe more a pound, but, you know, you can extend ground beef. You can feed a family with a pound. And it's just a, a really good budget way to eat grass-fed. Yeah. Um, you shared 10 cooking tips in the magazine for cooking with grass-fed beef. We're going to link to where listeners can download the whole thing and read all the tips and see all the recipes. But could you maybe just mention one or two of the most important tips right now? Sure. You know, as we've talked before, the most important thing is to pay attention when you're cooking. Use a meat thermometer. Take care. Don't overcook. You you don't want to go past about medium rare take it off the heat before it gets to the correct temperature so that you're going to let it rest for a few minutes. Um, the other thing is even before you cook, watch the way you thaw the meat. Um, it, it's so easy to be in a hurry and say, Oh, you know, I think I'm going to pull that, that steak out for dinner tonight, but it's in the freezer. And so you don't ever want to leave it on the counter thawing. That's a yeah, big grass fed no beef like this is often sold frozen, right? It is. It is. Most of, I think most of Panorama's line is case ready, meaning it's fresh meat. But, you know, sometimes, even when you buy fresh meat, sometimes you stick it in your freezer yourself. So when you're thawing it, you know, let it sit in the refrigerator for a couple of days. Or if you're in a hurry, put it in a vat of cold water and let it sit to thaw for, you know, up to an hour. You don't want to let it sit there all day, of course, but that will usually get it to a point where it's cookable. Don't ever thaw meat in a microwave. <laughs> Any kind what of happened? <laughs> Tell us what happens, Marilyn. Oh my gosh, you end up with gray spots. You know, part of it cooks, part of it's still frozen, and then you try to cook it and you end up with a mess. So, so that's, that's a that's big, not what you want to do. No, no, no. That's a big bad no, no. Especially when you're starting with quality, nice, organic grass-fed beef. Oh, exactly, exactly. So treat it with care. You know, you have spent money on this, so and it should be something you really enjoy eating. So just treat it with care. Be gentle. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Marilyn. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, you're so welcome. It's been a pleasure to talk with you also. That was food writer Marilyn Noble. You can find her online at marilynnoble.com. And you can download the Panorama Perspective magazine with the recipes we talked about today at ediblecommunities.com. 
Thank you for joining us today on Eat, Drink, Think. If you like this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at ediblecommunities.com. 